0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time. James Altucher with The James Altucher Show, and I'm with one of my favorite people of all time, Dr. Wayne Dyer, who uh, recently wrote the book, or it's about to be released, uh, a book called I Can See Clearly Now. He's also wr- written multiple bestsellers. Uh, your first book, uh, Dr. Dyer, Wayne, uh, your first book, Your Erroneous Zone, sold over 100 million copies. Isn't that right?
1: That's what they tell me. And then in 47 different languages, it's, uh, it's now being printed in, in countries where it was banned. Uh, when it first came out. One country banned out. it. All the countries behind the Iron Curtain banned it. Um, yes. Yeah, so, and now, you know, you know, countries like Czechoslovakia and Bulgaria and Poland and so on, all of them, uh, even Russia, um, now have it coming out in their, in their languages. So it's interesting how times have changed. I so used it, to have it, to, I used to send a case of, uh, your erroneous zones to London to someone who was teaching in uh, i think it was in prague uh and teaching at a university and they we, we'd have to actually smuggle them into the into the country uh in order to get to keep them from uh, being confiscated at the at the, at the borders
0: that's so, funny i mean in a sad way that's funny yeah <laughs> so you know so this basically you know puts you among the top selling authors of all time i mean this is not uh insignificant selling 100 million copies and then you've sold tens of millions of more you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for PBS uh your message has really resonated uh over the past 40 years which is a, a long time and and uh, your message has also evolved you know and maybe before we start talking about your book that's about to be released maybe you could sort of summarize what you see as the 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 arc of your career what what has your message been and how have you seen it evolve recently
1: well, it's uh it's really been always about um you know about self-reliance uh, in one form or another. I've often said that I I really feel like I had a uh a conversation with God just before I showed up here on this planet in 1940 and, and and I was asked, you know, what would you like to do on this trip and and I said, "Well, I think I'd like to teach self-reliance." You know, and God said, "You want to do that for an entire uh entire lifetime? Just teach self-reliance?" I said, "Yes, that would be a great lifetime." And he said, "Then well, then we better get your little ass into an orphanage and uh, we better ha- let you have all of these different experiences so that, um, once people start to question that, you will never be dissuaded because you'll have the experience of it. So everything right. in my life has been uh, directed towards teaching people how to self, have self-reliance. It has shifted from psychology, uh, and an emphasis on, uh, you know, on psychological principles to spiritual principles and that's something that i really had nothing to do with personally that's just that was just the direction that i was destined to go and um, well,
0: well it's interesting because you talk about how when you're very first, it, in your most recent book which is very autobiographical more autobiographical than all of your other books there's several things you talk about that i found very fascinating that will resonate very much with this audience and with me you talk about how with your very first book you basically uh bought thousands of copies of your book, put them in the back of your car and literally drove around the country finding bookstores to sell your book at and giving talks and so on. This is what I call a choose yourself career. You really chose yourself for success and rejected, you know, kind of the trappings of academia and other careers. You you invented your own career and it's been very successful.
1: Yes, it has. It was um it it, it was it, the when I, when Erroneous Zones first came out, I had, I had already written three, uh, three textbooks before that, uh, which, which had done well, but they weren't for, uh, you know, the general audience. Uh, and when I wrote Your Erroneous Zones, um, I was told, you know, that, that, uh, there's only one way to reach everybody in America, and that is to get on, uh, any of the, uh, syndicated shows. At that time, it was, uh, The Tonight Show, and it was Phil Donahue, and it was Mike Douglas, and Merv Griffin, and, uh, these were, uh, these were the national opportunities and, the, and there were no others. Uh, and Good Morning America and the Today Show and things like this, but they all just re- rejected every time we would call them. I, I, I had a publicist that I had hired who would work for it and they would call and, and tell them about it. It was, it just wouldn't happen. Um, so, uh, they, they just rejected and they, in fact, one time on the Donahue show, the, the Donna Gould, who was working for, working for me at that time, said, uh, they said, if we hear the name one, Wayne Dyer one more time, we're gonna, we're gonna hang up on you or something <laughs> to that effect. So, uh, there was just, there was just no getting on the national television. But there is another way to reach everybody in America. It's, uh, a little more tedious. It's, uh, but it's actually a little more fun as well. And that is to go to everyone in America. And, uh, that's exactly what I decided to do. Um, and you know
0: the same principle could work now. I mean there's a lot of evidence that shows despite all of this technology and all of this social media and so on actually having face-to-face interactions with people uh increases bonding, increases sales,
1: uh you know, and helps us strong connection. Oh, absolutely. Connection. There are many many ways to uh to, to reach everyone in America, not not just uh, by going them but even on the internet. I mean there are many many people who do podcasts like yourself there are people who do um you know who have uh, internet radio shows there's um there's hundreds of them out there um taking that opportunity to, uh, two of my daughters have just published a book um uh, one of them is has uh, just published a book called uh, goodbye bumps it's a, it's the whole uh, story of how she healed herself by using her mind uh it's a children's book and my other daughter's re- writing a book uh, that'll be out in june um called uh, Don't Die With Your Music Still In You, what it was like to be raised by spiritual pr- uh, parents. Now, they are uh, in the process of uh, of doing exactly what I did with your, your erroneous zones back in the 1970s, except that they're they're, they're taking advantage of whatever is out there now, uh, today. And uh, so they're not turning down any interviews. They're, uh, you know, making, and, and they're t- doing trips and doing all the same kinds of things that, uh, that I was doing, except that, uh, you know, when I was doing it in the 1970s, there was no internet and there was no... Uh, you know, uh, radio shows that were, uh, you know, just that you could put through a computer. But uh, whatever it is, it's like uh, Virginia Woolf, a great writer, once said that uh, I got a comment that I have my, my kids have quoted many, many times because I said it to them so many times. She said, arrange whatever pieces come your way. Uh, and I just think there 's such great uh wisdom in in that observation. Arrange well, whatever well, pieces come your way, whatever it is that shows up in your life, arrange it in such a way so that you can make it work for you, or you can do the opposite, which is uh just say well i can 't do that or it 's impossible or the 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 economy is down, or somebody else has uh got there before me, and you can come up with a uh, hundred million excuses. To keep yourself from uh, fulfilling a destiny that you signed up for before you even came here.
0: You know, you talk about this a lot in your book, uh, Excuses Be Gone. And, uh, and you see this now in this economy. People are very eager to blame the economy, blame the stock market, blame, uh, the government or whoever. But what would you say is kind of the, 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 the a, a good way to overcome these excuses to, so you can move forward, so you could find success or satisfaction with your life?
1: Well, I just think you have to have an 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 inner candle flame uh, that that never flickers, though though the worst might go before you. I mean, and and that's uh, you know, I read a book many many years ago by Napoleon Hill uh, called "Think and Grow Rich," and he said that the distinction between people who live a this isn't somebody just it isn't just about making money. Uh, In fact, that's a small part of that of that book. It's a classic book. it's uh, it's really about this idea of living a, an enriched life. And he said the difference between people who are able to live a fully functioning life and, and to attract riches and wellness and uh, happiness and abundance and prosperity into their lives is that the people who do that have something that he called a burning desire. And a burning desire is very different than just, the, oh, I'd really like to do well. I'd like to have my book do well. I'd like to have this music that I'm writing. I'd like people to know about it and so on. A uh, burning desire is, a, is like that, like I said, it's like an, having an inner candle flame that, n- that no matter what goes before you, it doesn't even flicker. And this is just, this is something that I've lived with my entire life. This whole idea. And, 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 and when you, there are so many people who just, they, they have a desire, but they don't have the willingness and the fearlessness and the, and the determination, um, and the, uh, and, and just the, uh, uh the opportunity seizing on every single opportunity to see something working. Uh, the economy is just the way it is. I've been, I've been through, you know, you know, I live, I'm 73 years old. I've been through many ups and downs in the economy. Uh, you know, throughout my entire life, there have been periods of time when, you know, it's very, very difficult to get a job and, and unemployment is at very high levels, and, and inflation has gone crazy, and, and these kinds of things. Up and down, they've been my whole life. But throughout that, the entire seventy-three years of my life, there's never been a moment when I was unemployed, ever. Um, from the time that I was nine years old and I got my first paper route, to the times in my as a as a young boy when I would go out and and shovel snow uh, for people, which I understand you have a great opportunity <laughs> to do there in New York right now. Um, and or cutting grass or taking out the ashes or going down to the grocery store and carrying out bags for uh little old ladies who can't carry their bags to their cars and and getting a nickel or a dime it's just endless there's endless opportunities to be able to to do these things i think most people don't know uh within themselves how to do this because they don't have a burning desire they've just they've accepted an a uh, sort of almost like a destiny that says that you're only ordinary and would would you say that,
0: that it's uh, that it's almost like they have to practice? Like if you're if you if you're let's say forty years old or fifty years old, and you have the mindset your entire life that oh I'm ordinary and I can't really break free, you have to sort of practice some internal muscle or some spiritual muscle or whatever it is to to kind of get break out of that box.
1: Absolutely. What you have to do, James, is you have to uh, you have to reprogram your subconscious mind. You know, your subconscious mind is the thing that, that that determines almost everything that you do. I mean, this morning when uh, w- when I got up, um, you know, I I went over and I, I got my vitamins and I had a glass of uh, a juice and uh, I brushed my teeth and I shaved and and there's many many things I've already done this morning. Uh, and I didn't think about any of them. I didn't figure out, you know, how do I use this, uh, this razor and, uh, you know, how do I fill the glass with, uh, with, with some juice in it and how do I open the vitamin bottles and, and so on. I just went ahead and, uh, had my subconscious mind just said, this is how you do these things. And this, it's not just true for all of the little events of your life, like driving your car and, and, and working on your computer and so on. Everything starts with a a conscious mind, and then you move it into the subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind has been programmed to believe that you're ordinary, that there are limitations, that there are things that you can't accomplish. These are called memes, and you've been hearing these memes from the time that you were little boys and little girls about what is possible, what women can do, what men can do, about how much money you can make. uh, How about if you go into, like I went into the profession of teaching. It was just something I just adored and wanted to do, and and I had an uncle who was just so good at it. And I've how many times people tell me, well, you can't go into teaching. There's no money in teaching. You can't make any money uh, doing those kind of things. And, um, you know, I'm still teaching. I've just got a bigger classroom and a bigger audience and so on. And there's sure, just and, unlimited and, and, opportunities to do that because I've never, ever bought into these the subconscious programming that I've heard around me that says, this is impossible. You can't make this happen and so on. I had, I had a different internal mindset which said, this is who I am and this is what I came here to do and I'm not going to let anything interfere with it, uh, nor am I going to use any excuses for why it isn't working. If it isn't oh. working, it's because I haven't used enough determination, I haven't been fearless enough or i haven't been willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen
0: and, and this brings me to your your book that's about to be released i can see clearly now and and essentially it seems like what you're doing is you're looking at back toward in on these seventy three years of all these important transform transformational moments in your life what you call quantum moments and how and whether they were positive or negative you know then you have the i can see clearly uh section where you say how these events were miracles really in your life that allowed you to propel forward like once you sort of saw what was happening how like how, how as you beautifully put it earlier as virginia wolf put it how the pieces were fitting together just right for you and how you were able to use those moments to take the next step so my question is why now you've written 41 books or more uh Now, at the age of 73, you write this incredibly autobiographical book. Why now? Uh, You know, as opposed to your your prior style of books, even though you have many autobiographical experiences in those books, this one really is an autobiography.
1: Yeah, it's like I was I was being interviewed in New York uh, many many years ago by the New York Times, and um, the other another person was there also being interviewed. His name was Arthur Miller, uh, the great playwright. You know who wrote uh, so, so many uh, so many great plays, you know, sure. Death of a Salesman, The Crucible, and and so many others that you probably had to read in high school or college, and uh, now it's a good time to read them. Uh, you know when you don't have to and there's no grade. But anyway, they asked him this question. He was 91 years old, I believe, at the time, it was, and uh, and they asked him the question. They said, "Are you working on another play?" And he was 91, and I'd never forget his answer because I jotted it down uh, so I would never forget. He said, um, "He said I don't know." He said, "But I probably am," and uh-huh. there, was, there was there was something in that and that answer that said, "There is. I'm, I'm aware now at this time in my life that there's something other than me and my ego and this thing that I call Arthur Miller and you know and this body that I'm in and so on. There's something else about uh, myself that is uh, moving the pieces around, that is moving the checkers around from uh, you know on this great big checkerboard called life, and that would be my answer to to your question." Um, I don't know why now. All I know is that I was on on the 26th of June, on 2012, I announced to all of my family, to my children, my eight children who were all here on Maui, um, that uh, I was not going to write any more books, that I had written 40 40 or 41 books. I, I had completed that. And the pressure that is on me to, to fill those empty pages uh, from something inside of me and to do the research and, and so on to do that. It's just, uh, it's just too much. And I just, I really want to do some other things, but, uh, I just don't want to take that on. That was on the 26th of June. On the 27th of June, I woke up and uh, I had talked to my uh, publisher and my, my, my close friend, Reed Tracy and the president of Hay House and so on. And I had uh, talked to him about this idea, of, uh, about, um, you know being able to step back and look at the uh, the 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 forces and these things that were taking place in your life that while they're taking place um you're not really aware of uh, of how miraculous they are but you, so when you can when you're able to step back and 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 look at it you know uh, from uh, I think Bette Midler has a song about this uh, you know uh, uh lo- looking looking back uh and and at at, at uh, you know see, seeing more clearly um how these different miraculous things were taking place and uh you know she co- it was called from a distance when you get when you get a little distance between yourself and the things that happen you can begin to see how all of these things were unfolding and that there was a tapestry taking place in your life and uh, and i had talked to reed many many times and he had heard me lecture over the years about all the different uh things that had taken place when I was in the service and when I was in high school and what I was like as a kid and and uh, and how they were all directing me towards uh, what was taking place now and that I thought wouldn't it be great if people could realize because I didn't want to write an autobiography I think I'm way too young for that and i didn't want, i didn't want to write a memoir i wanted to uh i wanted to get people to realize that, that if they step back and look from a distance at these things that have taken place in their life the goods the bads you know the diamonds and the stones the tough things the hard things the great things the times that smelled good the times when it smelled awful and you know, all of that and begin to see that there's some there's some force in the universe that is uh that is, that you are connected to that you are a part of that when you when you listen and when you allow it's going to direct you throughout your entire life. And, and so the 27th of June, I sat down and I started writing and I wrote for 90 straight days, morning sessions, afternoon sessions, and evening sessions. I spent, I, I didn't even have time to, to do anything hardly with the kids dur- during that time. Um, when I say kids, I use that advisedly. They're all grown up and have their own families and so on. Um, and, and And it was like something just to, just took over again, and I, and something was moving the pieces around, and the writing was so smooth and so easy in fact, the book that you're that you're talking about I can see clearly now it was hardly even edited you know i just uh, I just let it come, it just allowed it to to, to flow, and I began to realize how. You know, like, uh, for example, James, in the first five books that I wrote, uh, which were all New York Times number one bestsellers, the first five books that I wrote for the public after I had written uh, my textbooks, um, I looked through the index as I was writing. I can see clearly now I look through the index of each one of those books and the word God or spirituality or higher consciousness. Uh, uh, appeared once in the, in, on all five of those books. It, it just one time. And that was actually a quote for, about uh, Abraham Maslow's concept of self-actualization that I wrote about in The Sky's the Limit. Uh, then, uh, the next book that I wrote, um, had 37 references. Uh, to God, Spirituality, or Higher Consciousness. It was called, You'll See It When You Believe It. The book that followed that had it in the title, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. Now, I didn't ever sit down and say, okay, I've written enough books with a psychological emphasis and so on, and now I'm going to move into the world of spirituality and higher consciousness and so on. That wasn't what it was. There was something that was directing me that um, that allowed these, these ideas and these uh, books to come forth um, that I just, I just surrendered to. And I think that's what we have to learn how to do is to surrender to the highest place within ourselves that's saying, this is what you showed up here for. This is, uh, this is your excitement. This is what makes you feel good. This is what, what li- lights your fire, uh, inside of you and, and pay attention to it. And when you're aligned with it, like whatever it is that makes you feel good, it makes you really feel good inside and doesn't stop anybody else from feeling good. The reason that it, it excites you so much is because you're really now finally you're aligned with who you are. Who you are came here to be this. And, and, and if your life is one in which you're just getting up and, and going through the motions and being a commuter and going back and forth doing the thing, you know, when in 1976, when I left the St. John's University as, as a professor there, I was driving down the Long Island expressway. I had your erroneous zones on my uh on my lap uh, it had just come out in hardcover and um i was um I was a professor who was was about to get full tenure at the university, which means that I would have uh, guaranteed employment for, for the rest of my life all right and you know what uh james that that concept scared the hell out of me. Just the idea that I was going to be right here in this classroom, in this office, doing this for the rest of my life. And I was 36 years old. And I was on the Long Island Expressway. I pulled over onto the side, uh, and the cars were zooming by me. And I had this, uh, what, what my teacher Abraham Maslow called a peak experience. It was like, uh, it was a quantum moment in my life. It was like an energy that just said, you, um, you know, you don't want to be in tenure. You don't want to be, uh, have a guaranteed uh, employment. You don't want to be doing something that you've already done over and over and over again. And um you're going to take your book out there and you're going to, like all of this was like just overwhelming. And I drove into the university. I walked up to the second floor of Merillac Hall at St. John's University, walked into the dean's office, Dean Sarah Fassenmeyer. And I said, I can't, uh, I can't accept the tenured position. And uh, this will be my last semester. I'm going to, I'm going to go out uh, across the country and And uh, fulfill a dharma that I know is mine, and that. And
0: and this is a message that I really get from your book that it's not just in looking back at long past experiences that you learn to appreciate what those experiences did for you. You also, it gave me an appreciation that even right now in my life, the things that are happening around me, I should be listening in my gut to what these things are telling me. Because they're always telling you something. There's always a message in there somewhere that you can act on to improve your life. And it sounds like that's what happened to you when you were 36 years old. You really, you didn't listen to the societal commandments that I must have the secure, safe job. You, you jumped off the cliff.
1: Yeah. And you know what? It's like, it's, it's the same, uh, for when I was, uh, you know when I was 10 years old and in a classroom listening to a teacher um Mrs. Ingalls uh, reading to us from a, a book called The Secret Garden which was about a 10-year-old uh, girl named Mary who had been an orphan and uh when and I was a 10-year-old boy in 19 at that time in 1950 or uh, 1949 uh and um You know, and I had been an orphan for those ten years, and I was uh, very concerned about having to go back to that orphanage because my mother had finally got her family back together again, but with a, with a a new husband after my father had walked out on us. and, and that secret garden, I mean, I, I like to this day that, you know, that was, that was like 60 years ago. I can still remember sitting there and just being enamored of the idea that within each and every one of us, there's this secret place that, uh, that we can go to, to, to find fulfillment and to, to find joy. You know, it's like I live on an island in, uh, you know, in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I remember, um, Herman Melville writing in Moby Dick uh about and it's like every time i think about myself living on an island i'm looking out at the at that ocean right now he said for as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land so in the soul of man lies one insular tahiti full of peace and joy but encompassed by all of the horrors of the half-lived life and it's like you know that there is a place within us a secret garden you know uh, two years later i'm watching television on tuesday nights uh mr tuesday night uh, you're not old enough to remember but um it was a man named milton burrow who had a comedy hour and but i didn't get to watch the the milton burrow show because my stepfather was uh, you know had us on the opposite channel uh, there were only three channels on our little black and white Admiral television set that we'd had to go up on the roof to adjust the, uh, you know, the antenna to bring in the channels. Um, the opposite show to that, uh, to Milton Berle was, uh, a show called Life is Worth Living, Bishop Fulton Sheen. And he would, le- he would be lecturing on a subject called Life is Worth Living. I've written 42 books that could have that as a subtitle Life is Worth Living. I was 12 or 13 years old and I used to go down. Uh, and sit in front of that television set and take notes uh, about this whole idea and sit there and think to myself, I could do this. I could really be in front of a television audience and and, and command the attention. It's possible to do this. Um, And I thought those kind of thoughts when I was just a little boy. And now I look back on them and I think, oh, my God, that was was just like preparation for an entire lifetime of what I'm doing. All of us have these kind of moments in our lives. You know, you know and, fact,
0: and it was it was preparation not just for your first book or your second book but you constantly were going through change you were constantly were choosing yourself throughout this period like tell- tell the story when you were when you were sixty five when most people are thinking about retiring, I was really impressed with with this chapter in your book
1: yeah well when i the day after I turned sixty five um I was in Florida and um I, um uh, I just had this insight. I mean, I, a lot of stuff had been coming to me about the Tao. My friend, uh, Stuart Wilde, who, who had encouraged me to read the Tao and was practicing Taoist himself. Uh, I had read a book by, uh, James Fry called A Million Little Pieces, uh, which throughout it re, referenced the Tao. Um, I was eating re- in a restaurant, uh, that was called the Tao in Las Vegas. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, and this whole idea and Lao Tzu and the Tao, it just kept coming at me and coming at me. Um, and it was the day, um, I, I turned 65 on May the 10th, 19, uh, uh, or 2005. Um, and the, the next day on May the 11th, I called my secretary and I told her to come out to my office. And, uh, it was a, a garden apartment that I had in Boca Raton, Florida. And I told her I wanted you to empty this place. There were 20,000 books in there. There was all kinds of furniture. There were uh, all my accumulations from the previous 30 or so years. Uh, we're all in there, records of all kinds and, fo- and, and all kinds of personal things, all kinds of clothes and, sh- and so on. And I told Maya, I said, I want you to empty all of this. I want you to uh, g- give all the books away, give everything in here away, give the clothes to homeless people and, and then sell the apartment and give it to my, uh, my, uh, wife, my ex-wife, uh, uh and, uh, and just, uh, you know, and I'm going to Maui, and I said, uh, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to live the Tao. I'm going to take the 81 verses of the Tao Te Ching, and I'm going to write an essay about how to apply that, how to live the Tao now, uh, in every moment of your life. And I, for the next year, for the whole year of 2006, I just, um, I lived the Tao. I, th- I would read, I would, on January the 1st, I started on, uh, the, the very first, uh, verse. Uh, the opening line of the Tao Te Ching says the, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. Um, and I talked about why that, what that means and how important that is. Uh, and then for four days, I would just think about it. I would, uh, uh, meditate on it. I would, I was swimming in the ocean. I was doing yoga. Uh, I would, I would just all of it, whatever was in the fir- very first verse, I would live it. And then I would sit down after four days and I would look at a a drawing of Lao Tzu sitting on an oxen that was sitting in my my sacred writing space, and uh, I would just let him uh, dictate to me uh, what what he meant by this, because the Tao has got a lot of paradoxical things in it. You know, like uh, if you want to accomplish big things, think small. You know, if you want to do a journey of a thousand miles, it begins with a single step. You know, it's like on and on are these kind of paradoxes. You know, it's like... uh, if you want more mo- if you want more do less you know and and so on well it, so- it's funny
0: because there's a there's always a big historical debate about whether he was writing a spiritual text or a text as a political advisor to some emperor or right. or some combination but these things are applicable not only on a spiritual level, but on a kind of call it the real world level. But it turns out that they're the same thing. That they that the message is yeah. always applied to both. And,
1: and some call it the wisest book ever written. And it's like it's only eighty one verses. Each verse you can fit on one page. Um, uh, and it's uh, and and the more I got to looking at that and thinking about that, and he talked about, you know, God as uh, as he called it the Tao, the Great Tao, which means the you know the Great Way. And it was, um you know, it's to be found in nature, it's to be found within yourself, that it's something that we all, and you know, and he said the Tao that can be named is not the Tao, and a Tao is doing nothing, but it leaves nothing undone, and on and on with this wisdom. And so I wrote a book called Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, uh, and uh, applying the wisdom of the Tao. And the interesting thing about that is that I've gotten letters from Taoist scholars all over the world, especially from uh, places in China um uh, and in Taiwan. Uh, who claimed that this is one of the greatest interpretations of the Tao? Uh, you know that they had ever seen, and it's just very simple, direct. And I began to live that, and um, and, and again, it's just a, a part of listening. You know, when when that was coming out, when I was reading uh, a million little pieces, and when I was uh, reading uh, uh, Stewart's uh, books on the Tao, uh, it, it, this, this is this is a part of the uh, of the way that you know the universe is working through me. And it was such a calling. There was such an excitement about it. It was one of the greatest years of my life. You know, I did, I did very, very little traveling. Uh, and that just uh, opened up the door to, uh, to many, many other new projects as well. And, and by the way, James, uh, you know, after I made that decision that I'm not going to write another book and I wrote, uh, th- this, uh, I can see clearly now, I'm already working on another one. I want to do the same thing with the Bhagavad Gita. And, That's and it just keeps calling me. I've read the Bhagavad Gita three times in the last three months uh completely from cover to cover all 18 chapters and um i'm you know um, about...
0: you should uh check out stephen pressfield's uh the legend of bagger vance you know oh I, I, my goodness I,
1: I know the legend of bagger vance very well i've talked to stephen um oh, okay, I, 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 I quoted that in one of my earlier books and he wrote to me and explained what bagger vance means that's from bhagavad bhagavad gita the uh the character in there, his name was Juna, who was the the golfer, um, yes. you know, with uh, Walter Hagen and uh, Bobby Jones. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I'm very, very familiar with that. It's one of my all-time favorite films. You know, you find your swing, um, not by, by emulating other people, but by recognizing it within yourself. And, uh, you know, and that's God I, I- within you.
0: I, I also love the fact that you were reading, uh, a million little pieces by James Frey, uh, when you were getting this inspiration for, to write about the Tao, because that's, that's not a book I would, you know, that's, a, uh, essentially this quasi novel memoir about, uh, right. a guy who's coming, overcoming a really heavy drug addiction. And, um, you know, but yes, he, throughout the book, he is reading the Tao Te Ching and it kind of inspires him to get through this AA program and uh, it, that was an inspirational book as well but a very different style than than your book say so I, it's you, you should right. almost put together a reading list of how you uh, of all these different influences
1: yeah and I talk about that and I can see clearly now I mean Albert yes. Ellis's book uh, that was given to me when, uh, when I was in the 1960s sometime when I was at the university and my doctoral studies like a guide to rational living is a book I carried with me for two or three years I don't think I ever went anywhere without it and it was totally, completely life-changing for me. Uh, and it was just a little a manual, uh, handed to me by my, uh, co-author of my, my three textbooks, uh, Dr. John Brand, who's now passed on. Um, but he, uh, he just said, here, just Wayne, he said, just read this. And I just thought, oh, well, it's just another one of those books. It was, it was completely life-changing. It was the, the awareness within us that we have this rational ab- ab- ability to, uh, overcome, you know, so, so many of the, 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 the The subconscious uh programming that we've had about how difficult life is and about how the world ought to be the way I want it to be and that that people ought to be uh doing uh, exactly and and other people are responsible for the for my being unhappy and so on. He just sort of just took all of that nonsense out and said you know we are responsible for everything that takes place in our life and uh, you know and it was like a life-changing thing these kinds of quantum moments in my life are really what uh, you know defined uh, I can see clearly now
0: right And, and what I get from that too again is not just that I mean it's so I can look back to times when let's say for instance I you know went dead broke, lost my house, lost my family and how I recovered from that. And and I can talk about how this was a, a ultimately a positive thing for me even though it felt really really horrible at the time. But even now, it's it's forced me to put myself into a daily practice of healthy living that I continue to this day so that these so that I don't waste these quantum moments. They they last forever for me. And I and I see how you did that in, you know, I can see clearly now. These it wasn't like these were distinct moments that then slipped away you kept them with you and built upon them and built you know kept transforming your life in this positive way even at the age of 65 even at the age of 70 and even right now you're going to be starting a new
1: book i've already started it it's uh it's it's just uh, it's you know rumi said uh, this very wonderful line he said sell your cleverness and and purchase bewilderment you know Get into a state of awe, like what you just told me about losing your family and, you know, and the, and, the, and those down moments in your life. Um, the, those things, they really saved your life. You know, if, if, if they hadn't come along, the, the likelihood is that you wouldn't have uh, met the person that you've, uh, you know, that you've now married to. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, been able to do the kind of work that you're doing and, and feel so much uh you know so so much energy and and inspiration uh in being able to put this out to to you you put out messages to you know half a million people on a regular basis about uh being able to overcome difficulties and so on um the likelihood is that you would have just gone on probably gotten yourself to be overweight perhaps gotten addicted to something and um and who knows had an accident or died or whatever so that you know that I always said that there's three ways to enlightenment okay. The first way to enlightenment is—I uh, call it—enlightenment through suffering. Enlightenment through suffering is you go through su- uh, things that, like perhaps the thing that happened to you, or, the, or addictions, which I've had in my life. You know, you're talking to someone who's 25 years without any alcohol in his body, um, based on just a quantum moment, uh, not because I was an alcoholic. But because of what a great teacher had told me in India, that if you want to reach your full potential, you came here with big dharma, he told me, then you'll have to do it with sobriety, total sobriety. And uh, the next day I just gave it up. I had been drinking, you know, every day, not a lot, was never drunk in my life, but just walked away from it in that moment because I just didn't want to destroy another brain cell, um, and be able to use it through the rest of my life. So enlightenment through suffering is you go through these experiences and then 10 years or so go by and then you look back and you say, oh my God, now I know why I had to have that? Why I had, why that divorce? Why that fire took place? Why that accident? Why that uh, you know bankruptcy, whatever it might be? And you begin to look at it, and almost everybody who goes through one of these things ten years later will say it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And this is people who are living their lives in wheelchairs and so on, who will look back and say, Oh my God, that accident or when that happened, I can now see how it really turned my life into a whole new place, even though I'm in a wheelchair. The second way to enlightenment is called enlightenment to being in the present moment so that when these events come along and they take place you know an illness comes along an accident happens a bankruptcy shows up a, a fire destroys things and so on instead of being in a state of okay now i got to go through ten years of suffering in this moment i can say what's this? what's in it for me i can step back and i can look at this and say oh my god and get down on your knees and be in a state of gratitude for the pain that you're experiencing right now, for the depression, for the anxiety, for the stress, whatever it might be, saying thank you and I'm listening and whatever it is that I have to learn from this, I'll accept. That's the second way to enlightenment. Third way to en- enlightenment, as ca- I call it, enlightenment by getting out in front. That is, now you get to such a place that your intuition is so polished and so firm and you have a, such a trust in your connection to your source that you know. That is, it says in the, in the Course in Miracles, if you knew who walked beside you at all times on this path that you have chosen, you could never experience fear or doubt again. You know you've got a senior partner. You know that there's an energy of some kind. The same energy that is uh, moving the planets and, and opening the roses in the morning is also opening your, uh, your own heart. As, as Rumi once said, you know, uh, you know, what was, he said, what was said to the rose that made it open was said to me here in my chest. When I found you, and he was speaking about God, there is an invisible intelligence that is keeping the planets in alignment, that is opening all of the flowers every morning, that is growing your fingernails. It's the same intelligence. It's called the Tao, or, or, or the divine mind, or God, or spirit. It doesn't matter what you call it. The Tao that can be named is not the Tao. The, the moment that you try to name it, the reason that, that he, that Lao Tzu says that is because the moment you try to name it you go from oneness to twoness. now you got the thing and the name that you have for it and that's the nature of the of the physical domain but your intuition gets so um you know so honed that uh you can get out in front of it and you can anticipate and now now you can do this like for example you know you're you're in a relationship with someone and you know that if you say this particular thing you know uh, and then she's going to react back to this and then if i say it this way then she's going to be mad and then what's going to happen is uh, we're not going to talk to each other for a couple of days we're going to go through a freeze out and on a, so when you get to this higher level that i'm talking about you can anticipate all of that in an, in, a, in a nanosecond and you can just stop yourself and instead of saying the thing that's going to create this, uh, you know, this difficulty in your relationship. Instead of doing that, you say, you know, honey, um, that's a good point. You know, I'll, I'll think about that. Uh, and you suspend your ego, and you let it, you let it go, and you don't any longer need to be right, because when you have a choice to be right. Or, to be kind, you just pick kind, and that 's just one example. Then you start anticipating all kinds of things coming coming your way and well, so um, and as you do that, then you take action on it. I would suggest that you probably did that in order to get this interview that we 're doing right now you uh, know?
0: absolutely Wayne. and and you know what what 's really interesting in what you just said is you gave these three methods for enlightenment. And then rather than talk about uh, some, you know, esoteric benefit of enlightenment, the benefits are right here in real life right now. You know, you, you went right into talking about uh, relationships and, and, and arguments. And I think that's what resonates so well right now, because people realize the the corporate world they grew up in, the educational system they grew up in. Everything they've been promised in their childhood and early adulthood might not work out anymore the way they thought or the way they, were, they have been told. But it's through this type of enlightenment thinking and this type of thinking about, well, what else is going on in the world that I might not understand? I think this, this resonates on a very practical level as well. And that's what you speak so clearly about in, in all of your books, but really also in this latest book. You can see clearly now.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, and I see, you know what, James, I see it in everything. I mean, um, you know, e- even my decision to do this interview this morning, because I, I turned down so many of them now, uh, just because my life would be just filled with nothing but that if, if, uh, if that were the case um but i'm thinking you know it's like when 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 someone calls me when reed calls me when uh, you know he he encourages me to do it and you are, are are willing to do it and you're willing to get you know uh to make it all happen and i think you know it it it's uh, w- w- if it resonates within me and i think you know there's somebody out there that's going to hear this that um you know you know what uh, they might not even be born yet. I mean, this—they might be listening to this, uh, you know, 30 years from now. Uh, and 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 you have this awareness that uh, when you are propelled to go in a certain direction, or when you, you know, and, and you're on the fence, you know, you you know there's that old song, "I've been sitting on the fence, and it doesn't make much sense because you keep me in suspense, and you know it." And it's like getting getting off the fence. Uh, going back and forth, I don't know, you know, if I should or if I shouldn't. But there's a part of you that says there's something that's pulling you to go in this direction, to make this turn, to go left instead of go right, to to say yes uh, when when most of the time you say no, but to say yes this time because there's something out there moving the pieces around, and it doesn't, it isn't just my morning here to, uh, talking to you. It's um, it's the impact that it can have on whoever's listening to this right now, saying, you know what, I think I'm gonna. You know, I think I'm going to make a change. I'm going to look at I'm going to start being in a more of a state of gratitude. I'm going to say thank you more. I'm going to get, become more peaceful. I'm going to just not argue so much with the, whatever it might be. Uh, and all of us are impacting each other in, in, in this big way all the time. It's like you get this. You know, when I wrote, I can see clearly now. Every single day that I would write, I would just have the, another insight and go, oh, my God, so that's why this took place. So that's why I had to do this. So that's why when I was in the Navy and uh, and I had to, um, you know, I, I almost got court-martialed because I took a stance against, uh, you know, a really in, a discriminating policy on Guam. So that's why I had to do this. And, oh, my God, that lecture that I went when I was at the University of Michigan in graduate school that day that they showed that, that uh, example of uh, – you know, someone—the uh, the placebo effect of someone who had actually, because they were so convinced in their mind, while they were blindfolded, they were convinced in their mind that that that, that their arm was going to be touched by a hot, um, red-hot little uh, ice pick. That uh, that, and 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 then at the last moment, he took the ice pick away, which was red-hot, and put a pencil eraser there. And on this woman's arm, a blister formed. And I and I, and it's like, I've never, i walked out of there. I was just like flabbergasted. Oh my God, our mind is so powerful that if it believes that it's about to be burned, even though it's not going to be burned, it can create a blister. That's how powerful our mind is. I've never forgotten that. And I raised my children to believe that. And my daughter wrote a children's book about how she used her mind to heal herself, on and on and on it goes with uh, with virtually every experience that we have in our life. And that's that that's what uh, Napoleon Hill was talking about when he talking about a burning desire. When you have a mind that's open to everything and attached nowhere, that allows you to just say, yes, I'll try this. Yes to life instead of living in fear, which is what most people do. They live in some kind of fear. Fear I'm not good enough. Fear I won't succeed. Fear somebody else won't like me. On and on it goes, and, and fear is the cause of so much illness on our planet, as well as uh, mental illness as well.
0: It really is, and you know the the common question I get because I hold regular uh, Q and A sessions on on Twitter, and the common question I often get is people feel very stuck in their lives, and a lot of that is due to uh, the fear of making a big change, like a, like you've made many times. You know, what would you say to someone who is feeling right now stuck in their lives? I was, and, they, and they use that specific word.
1: Yeah, if 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 you're feeling stuck, your stuckness uh is going to uh it's going to have a physical impact on you. Number 1. Um you're going to get sick if you stay stuck. Um I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, it could be diabetes, it could be it could be cancer, it 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 could be uh high blood pressure, it could be depression. Um whatever it might be, your stuckness uh is 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 really a reflection of your unwillingness to look at what you're here for what is it all about and if what you if you understand that you are here for something and and the answer to that is you know muktananda this great uh, spiritual saint when people would walk into his ashram and he would he would stand there at the door and he would ask them question do you know the difference between good and god Do you know the difference between good and if they said no he would just form with his index finger and his thumb he would form a circle a zero and he said, like, to, to indicate that the only difference between good and God is zero. There is no difference. Okay. So that if it makes you feel good, it's making you feel God. And if it doesn't interfere with anybody else's right to feel good, that's where you have to go. So what is it that makes you feel good? What is it that inside of you just lights a fire inside of you? You said, ah, this, see, I know when I'm, I'm living my excitement. Right now, in this moment, in this interview, I'm living my excitement. I'm excited, okay? So I know that I'm on purpose uh, because I'm feeling good about being able to get this message across. When I'm on stage, I know that I, I feel good. Now, when I'm drawing you know, uh, or painting, I don't feel good at all. Um, and consequently, my painting reflects that. Um, even when there's loud noise and there's music coming on, I don't feel good with that because I like silence and so on. But there are other people. I met a woman the other day who who plays a flute for a living. I mean, she's a flutist, a flautist, however you say that. Because uh, I asked her both ways. She said, we're correct. I said, but you, I said, what made you become a flautist? You know, it's like I, I heard flute music my whole life. I've always kind of liked it. But she said... uh she heard it when she was 5 years old and she absolutely knew that this is what she had to do. And she said and I went off of that path and I went I tried other things. I tried being in sales, I tried being in this and that and none of them ever touched me like the flute is. So she said I became expert at it. And I began to play it and then I began to write about it and then I joined an orchestra and and she, and it's her whole life. And isn't it great that there are people who could hear a flute uh you know when they're 5 years old. I was just in Abu Dhabi. This year, and I went to a place called the Falcon hospital. and in a falcon hospital like in the, in that part of the world, falcons are are really revered because they were the you know for the better ones and the people who lived in the desert, a falcon could su- could supply the food for the entire clan. Because, uh, they could go out and they go out and they hunt and they trained them how to hunt and then, and, and not to eat their prey and then they, they, they would come and, uh, and teach them how to do that. And so this woman that runs this falcon hospital in, uh, uh, in Abu Dhabi, uh, heard me speaking there. I, I was invited by the royal family to come over there and speak. And she said, "I'd love to invite you out to my falcon hospital." I went out there. It was one of the most intriguing days of my life. I walked in there, and there were all these falcons sitting in there. And I had one on my arm, and I actually fed a uh, a bird to a uh, to a falcon that ate it out of my hand. And I said. Where did you? Well, you know, like, all, she was the, like the world's experts on falcons. She said I was like six or seven years old, and she was living in Germany. And I saw a film about a falcon. And I, she said I just knew that this is what I was here for. And she has the play, people fly from all over the world and bring their falcons to this because it's like the falconry is, is something that they they practice over there in that part of the world. They have competitions and so on and she's has the only falcon hospital in the world because something stirred her when she was 6 or 7 years old and she was never able to escape it when you live your excitement whatever it might be it might be me writing books or being on stage or it might be just looking at a falcon or hearing a flute and it just t- touches something deep inside of you and you just you, and you feel now now you have your choice you know and you know,
0: Wayne, one thing I've noticed both in, in this interview and in your, in your book, you reference so many different sources that had an influence on you. Uh, I think part of finding that, that passion is exposing yourself to so many different types of, uh, writing, you know, different belief systems, different, uh, you know, whatever it is. You know, just keeping yourself open for the opportunity to find what that passion is, because you could find it at, at six or you could find it at 60 or 70 or whatever. There's oh, no yeah. real limit.
1: Well, you could never escape the now. So everything is everything takes place in the now. Everything that ever happened to me in the, in, in the past didn't happen in the past. It happened in the present. It happened in the now. And everything that's ever going to happen to me isn't going to happen to me in the future. It's going to happen to me now in this moment. So it's like being able to live in the now. And I'm just editing my daughter's book. I can, uh, the don't die with your music still in you. And she was saying in there how in her, and when we were growing up in my mom and my dad's, uh, you know, home, uh, speaking about me and my wife. It was, you know, there was the Quran in there. There was the Bhagavad Gita in there. There was, you know, the Bible was in there. There were spiritual texts from all over the place. There were symbols of all different religions in the place. And, and my children were always encouraged to expose yourself to all of these. And and if any, you've also,
0: I mean, you've also mentioned James Fray's Million Little Pieces, Virginia Woolf uh maharajas i am that if i'm not mistaken right uh, you know rumi you you've expo- you you've even in this interview you've mentioned so many different uh sources and and resources and that um gives you pleasure and propels you forward and i think that's a, a thing that a lot of people don't do they sort of say okay i exposed myself to everything when i was in school and now i've got to figure it out on my own but like you've said you know and this is in your your third uh Uh, lesson uh, third path to enlightenment you're never really alone there's always that uh, extra partner there's always the universe around you that's throwing more opportunities to find resources to help you and and to never forget that i think is an important lesson
1: absolutely i had one of my another great teacher in my life was carl jung and i was trained as a jungian analyst at the beginning of, of my doctoral studies and he had he had a very important observation he said at the same moment that you're a protagonist in your own life and you're making choices. He said at the very same moment, you're also the extra or the spear carrier in a much larger drama. You are, in fact, he said, doomed to make choices. Now this is a, think of that word, uh, James, doomed to make choices. Such a paradox. Okay. If you're doomed, then you're not making choices. If you're making choices, you're obviously not doomed. But he said you have to live with both of those. Now here's how I explain this because we have to cl- close out this interview. Um, uh, he said, uh, I I say to you how I interpret that, how I understood that first of all think about your body the body that you're in now you're in a male body i'm in a male body um and i'm i'm in a body that's uh, about six foot two it has blue eyes it has no hair on its head it has uh you know it has certain characteristics and so on and in in essence that's what for this incarnation i'm doomed i'm doomed to live i'm not going to be in a female uh, four four foot ten body i'm not going to be in any other but this is the body that i get okay now what kind of choices do i have to make within that context well i can decide how healthy it's going to be. I can decide whether I'm going to exercise it or not. I can decide actually how long it's going to live. There's many, many choices that I make about this body uh, within the context of being doomed to live in this body and not any other body. Now, if you take this metaphor and you extend it to not just the physical body, but to the rest of your life and all that you are, you are, in essence, you were given a dharma. You showed up here with a purpose. You showed up here with an energy that propels you, and there's something that excites you. And it's like whether you want to be a falconer uh, or whether you want to be a musician or whether you want to be a writer or whether you want to raise horses in Montana, whatever it might be, there is something that excites you. Now, you have you have been doomed in other words this is your dharma this is what you're here for but you're making choices and the choices that you make all along all the course corrections that you make involve am i willing am i willing to do whatever it takes to make this come true i've always been willing are you determined that is are you going to not let anything interfere with it yes you have to have that determination am i am, am i fearless in other words am i going to get the fear out of me and come from a place of love from divine love am i am i using compassion compassion for myself and compassion for others and ultimately do i reach that state the highest rung on the ladder if you will you know when rumi said you are when you are born a ladder is placed before you to help you to escape from this world so to understand that you're in this world but you're not of this world. And when you reach the top of that ladder, the top rung on that ladder of divine love, you realize that yes, you are doomed. You have been, you, you're to be a writer. You're to do all of these things, but you also make choices and course corrections along the way. And they come from that, those are the kind of choices, just like the choice you make about how your body is going to be. When you understand that, when you understand that you showed up here for a reason and a purpose, And, and now I'm going to be willing and I'm going to be fearless. I'm going to be determination. I'm going to, uh, determined. I'm going to be compassionate. Then you can make, you know, your, your. You won't get to the end of your life because I just read a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying by a woman in Australia who was a hospice nurse. And she interviewed people every day who were dying and asked them what were their regrets. And she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of People Who Were Dying. And she wrote a book about it. And the number one regret of people who were in hospice care under her care as a nurse the number one regret of the people dying was i wish i'd have had i'd had the courage to live my life the way i knew i should rather than listening to other people tell me what to do that's the essence of it all
0: that's really important because as you said you're 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 doomed to make your choices but if you don't make your choices you're even more doomed absolutely (laughs) someone else is making the choices for you right and you know on, on that note Wayne, uh, I really appreciate you spending the time and on this interview. I really want to recommend. I can see clearly now. It's a great book. It's inspirational. I also recommend all of the books that you reference in in the book and in this interview because I think they're all transformational books. And uh, again, once again, thank you for for uh, coming
1: on the show and being interviewed. It's my pleasure. God bless you. Good luck to you, Thanks, my Wayne. friend. Namaste. Stansbury Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be
0: personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansbury Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansbury Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansbury Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific
1: financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation.